Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. We had done a message recently on Ephesians 1-3, talking about those spiritual blessings in Christ, and we kind of did that in preparation for this. But if any weren't here for verses 3, when we looked at spiritual blessings in Christ, that might be a good message to go back and listen to. It's on Sermon Audio. Let's start reading in verse 3, Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, according as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, in which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Now, the doctrine or the teaching of unconditional election, as you well know, one of the most controversial doctrines in the Bible. I believe one reason is because not just because of man's depravity and, and the hatred of God that man has by nature, but those that take the Bible and teach this doctrine, no matter what side they're on, they have misconceptions and they have biases. And uh, a lot of this is misunderstood, of course, you know, by the hearers. If you've got a teacher that's teaching it with misconceptions, then there's going to be misunderstandings. And, we know that uh, people on really both sides will pick up the Bible and they will twist this doctrine one way or another. They will be uh, not presenting the truth in its purity or its clarity. Now, what are, what are some of the reasons about this on the sovereign grace Calvinistic reform side? Why? Why are there problems? And that's mainly what we're going to be addressing. Of course, as we go through, we'll be, we'll be disproving the false narrative of the Armenian mindset. But in the Sovereign Grace Calvinistic Reform community, why do they mess this doctrine up? And they have. A lot of them have. And I did in the past because I was five-pointer before I was converted, before I believed the gospel. And the way that I handled it was not the way, of course, that I handle it now. I, I handled it before, separate from the gospel. You know why? I didn't know the gospel. That's why. But they leave out Christ. Because of that, they make no gospel connection at all. They make the doctrine of election. They talk about certain debates are in-house debates versus not in-house debates. And they use that language to include certain people in Christianity and other people not in Christianity. Secondly, they let the Armenians water down their doctrine by not being able to respond to Armenian arguments. There's no excuse for that at all. When a person is a preacher or a teacher and they are dealing with these doctrines, they ought to be able to respond in defense of these doctrines. And if they can't, they ought not be teaching them. And because of this, they have adopted and even integrated some of the Armenian objections and created sort of a hybrid doctrine. We jokingly sometimes talk about Calminianism. And sometimes they'll do this and still claim somehow they'll say, 
no, we still fit in the five-point arena. And you listen to them and you're thinking, that's why we're here. This is sort of like a safe haven. We came here and we collectively, we can see through these weak points. And we are careful to make sure that we shore this up and that we don't fall for these weak points. And we point them out to, so that we can be consistent, not for consistency's sake, but for the truth's sake, for the glory of God. So we need to be the ones to lead in the area of, of straightening that part out at least. And that's what exactly what I do. This morning, the bulk of the message, I want to address the question, is election part of the gospel? And if it is, how is it a part of the gospel? Counting the time when I was not converted, I came into play with these doctrines, the five points, back in 1982. So it's been a little bit over 30 years. But in those 30 years, I listened to countless messages and series on unconditional election, on the doctrine of election. And I've heard many of these preachers start out in an introductory message. They'll start out with this. Election is not salvation, but it is unto salvation. Wish I had a dollar for everybody I've heard say that. Now, that is a true statement, and I have no idea why they're saying it, because you usually don't go on to to say why. And and I'm guessing that somebody famous has said this, and it's been repeated. That's the way those things work. Preachers just keep repeating it. We have the scriptures. Sovereign grace is in the scriptures, and we'll be talking about the in messages to come, the antiquity, the fact that these doctrines are ancient. They precede these guys that are often quoted and a lot of times inconsistent. Besides that, Spurgeon is one who made the bold statement that Calvinism is the gospel. Then he turned around and spent the rest of his life talking about his Armenian brethren, especially John Wesley would be one example. And because of that, he has caused people who claim to be sovereign grace, to say, well, are you smarter than Spurgeon? Spurgeon said John Wesley was saved. George Whitfield said John Wesley was saved. And, and so because of men like this, it has opened the door to point to them, which they're not the authority, Scripture's the authority, and make it okay to look at people who are working hard and who are outwardly supposedly living clean and say, these people are saved. How dare you say they're not saved? And then they start spitting out myths like you can't read anybody's heart. And the scripture says otherwise, what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. And so we'll be getting into that. And besides that, Arminians love C.H. Spurgeon. They read after him. If Spurgeon says Arminians are saved, the Arminians are going to love him. So that might kind of give you a warning that he makes no distinctions on why one is a gospel or not. That's going to happen. It aggravates me. Over the years, instead of preachers giving reasons when they make statements like this, when they say election is not salvation, it's unto salvation, over the years, instead of them giving reasons, perhaps I would give a reason against fatalism or against hyper-Calvinism. Because, in other words, it's not just we're elect and that's it, we're saved. We don't have to worry about preaching because the primitives and some of the others will do that. That would be the thrust of my explanation, that particular statement. Speaking of election, some preachers in their introductory messages, I've heard, 
a lot of them, would go and say, this doctrine of election is meat. It's something that uh, is for those that are fully grown. And our Armenian brethren don't see this doctrine like we do. I know you all have heard that before. This doctrine is all over the place in the scripture. It's basic. There's so many layers of this. And historically, it's just ridiculous the amount of information is there. It's just not covered very often. And when it is, it's hated. That's why people look at it as meat, because it's not covered and it's hated. These things are things we have to see and realize and unpack and straighten out. And it does get aggravating. And we know that it's set up this way for a reason. God has his people in place. There must needs be heresies among us so that those that are approved may be made manifest. We know that false gospels are in place to contrast the glory of God. And those that were foreordained to condemnation, as it says in Jude, are going to be there. False prophets are foreordained. All that stuff's in place. I realize that. But when you're in the battle and having to go back and enlighten people about not just what's in the scriptures, but how that people handled the scriptures in the past and these propagated myths over hundreds of years continue to go on. And some people will listen, some people won't. A lot of preachers will say proof that the Armenian really is incon- just inconsistent and he just hasn't grown to see, he hasn't got off the bottle and took in this meat yet, is they're inconsistent in they're our brothers and sisters because when they pray, they pray like a Calvinist. They ask God to save their loved ones. They say they believe in free will, but when it comes right down to it, they'll ask God to save their relatives, the ones that they love. And then they go further and say, see that in their heart, they're believers because they're asking God to open their relatives' mind. But in their head, they're mixed up. They're inconsistent. So the problem is just mere inconsistency. It has no idea of knowledge, understanding, and love for the truth. And an enlightenment that God has given eyes to see. It's just a matter of you know, bad luck and consistency. If they just get their, get their head straight to match their heart, they'll be okay. We know the scripture doesn't make that separation of head and heart. It's the same thing. So we have a lot of dispelling of a bunch of myths that have perpetuated for a long time. So let's start getting into this question about how is election connected to the gospel? If indeed it is. I don't think we have to labor and actually look at verses, look them up, because I think we've got a lot memorized that explicitly say in the scripture that salvation is by grace. We don't have to. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. That's one. I mean, we all know that. By grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And it only takes one to prove it. There it is. But there's, there's many in the scripture that says salvation's by grace. Now, keep up with me here. That we're we're talking about unconditional election, and we're going to associate. They we're asking the question. We're going to associate it with the gospel, whether or not it should be associated with the gospel. Is it connected to the gospel? And if it is, how? And here is the first area that we're looking at. It has to do with the area of grace. Does unconditional election have anything to do with grace? We also know that the scripture in, uh, you don't have to turn there, but Acts twenty twenty four it talks about in the word of God that God says that the gospel is the gospel of the grace of God. So the gospel, not only are we saved by grace, 
And if we want to find out information about salvation, we go to the gospel. And the gospel is called, it's labeled as the gospel of grace. That's why we we have named this group Gospel Grace Ministries. It came from Acts 20.24. So can we go ahead and say that a message about salvation that does not preach out or is explained out to be grace, we can say, that's not the gospel. It doesn't qualify as the gospel. We can just as easy say that a gospel that has grace in it is the true gospel. On the flip side, we can just as easy, and we better do it, say that one that doesn't have grace is not the gospel. We have to think that way. Paul writes that way, and some of the other apostles, Christ does it too. So we have to use our minds biblically and compare spiritual things with spiritual. And it's not like we're going out on a limb. There are specific texts that say that, well, I just quoted one, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We're saved by grace. And then it says, not of works. The Holy Spirit did that work for us in inspiring that writing. So it's not like we're taking a, a massive leap in the dark here or going out on a limb that can't support us. It's scripturally supported. So we have to think that way throughout. That's what I'm trying to do this morning. Turn to Romans 11. Romans 11, start in verse 1. You remember the context. Paul here is dealing with this theological and doctrinal foundations of Romans 1 through Romans 11. All those chapters, he's building this foundation before he gets to the practical matters afterwards. And he starts talking about himself and people born of the same bloodline and he talks about the as as it mentions in Romans 9 the true Israel that's among national Israel he's going to be talking about the remnant remember in Romans 9 it says they are not all Israel that are of Israel and here he's going to be talking about those that are God's true Israel and he says in verse 1 I say then Did not God cast away his people? God forbid. He said, for I, this is Paul speaking, I am an Israelite, the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God did not cast out his people whom he foreknew. Notice that. Whom he foreknew. But he qualifies it there. He said, God didn't cast out his people whom he foreknew, including himself in that group. Or do you not know What the scripture said in Elijah, how he pleaded with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they killed your prophets and dug down your altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what does divine answer say to him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant and we know what remnant means. It's a small piece of the bigger piece. This is the salvation type election that they're talking about of those that were chosen out of that nation that are the true Israel of God. Those that believe the promise of salvation conditioned on Christ alone. Where it talked about the seed of Abraham in Galatians, of those that believe the promise, which include both Jews and Gentiles, the whole elect together, which is spiritual Israel. Notice here what it says, even though at this present time there is a remnant, what? According to election, period. No, 
the election of grace. The election of grace. So here we see, under the inspiration of the Spirit, the word grace, the idea of grace, is joined with election. It's not separated. It's not something that's out of focus where it just talks about election. Aren't we excited about the sovereign God? He elected. He's got the right to elect. It has grace connected to it. Now, further, and here's that point that we talked about. If we see something one way, the flip side of it, what grace is not, it says it right here. We don't have to really go too far. It's right there in the next verse. But if by grace, if election is by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is not grace. And on the flip side, if it was by works, then it doesn't have anything to do with grace. Otherwise, it's not by works. So Paul here, to me, this is one of the clearest verses of not having a hybrid situation. It's one or the other. It's either, it's either works, which would be by the law, some type of a merit system, or it's by grace, which is apart from merit of law keeping or any kind of other deed. But you can't mix them. So there we have it, the election of grace. Salvation is by grace. The gospel is the gospel of the grace of God. And here we see election is by grace. And we know election is part of salvation. So we at least see there is an extension connecting election to the gospel by what we've seen so far. Very, very easy to see that. Now, we start to see one of the purposes in defining and explaining what grace is. That grace and works for salvation actually oppose one another. For salvation, if we're talking about how one is saved, we see that grace and works, they oppose one another. You know, this is something that when we make those posts, like on Facebook or something, and talk about, we make a good gospel statement. We don't talk about man at all. We just talk about what Christ did. And people right away come back, but, but, but. And this is the point we need to say, you know, for salvation, works and grace oppose each other. Now, we have to see that God, by sovereign grace, puts people in a position where they cannot access traction to be the ones to earn, to merit, to gain or affect any part of salvation. In other words, in order to be the ones that make a difference between heaven and hell. God puts men and women that he chooses in a position where they cannot access any traction to do that. We know just the timing of election. We know because it's before the foundation of the world. That's the first step and where they can't get any traction to do anything about it. It's already decided. Look at Romans 9. I just want to look at one verse in here to kind of go along with this point about how or if the gospel is connected to election. Verse 11, Romans 9 and verse 11. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil. Why are you bringing us up? Right here. That or so that the purpose of God according to election might stand. And here it is. Boom. Not of works. But. Of him that calleth. He could have just as well said, but of grace. Right? 
So again, the point is made again in the same book that we looked at in, in Romans. We looked at chapter 11. Now here we are going back to, to 9. It talks about the timing of election. We'll, we'll get more specific here that it's just not talking about right before conception. But we know all of election was done before the foundation of the world. It doesn't get that specific here, but we already know that. That's an established fact in the scripture that all election of people unto salvation was done before the foundation of the world. It wasn't done at conception or right before conception. Some people might try to read that in here. It's just not there. Now, it's set up here again. This is, this is one that's set up. It not only says, you know, before they're born, which gets it out of their hands, but it also goes to some type of a future thing or even present. They haven't done anything good or evil. So God doesn't even look to that. Why? So that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand not of works, but of grace, but of him that calleth. So the purpose of God in election is something maybe we need to look into, of course, to see if there's a gospel connection. So God shows, and we'll get to that, God shows from the beginning a separation. He sets apart a people, individuals, unto himself for his purpose. He just stated there's a purpose involved. And that purpose, we know, is to save them, redeem them, bring them safely over to create them and shape them into vessels of mercy, vessels of honor, and all these things. And he does it for the express purpose of glorifying himself. That's a short version of, of why. I mean, we know that you can unwind that on and on and on and talk about it. Scripture spends a lot of time on that. The first part of his activity, in, in, you know, chronologically, would be actually before election. It's when he sets his affection on these individuals that we're talking about and uh, actually loves them. So he, he chooses or elects those that he already loves. Now, we're going to look at the word foreknowledge. We see chronologically that foreknowledge comes first, and we're going to see, uh, of course, there is a, gospel aspect there and um, the same thing those people are loved in Christ just like these people are chosen in Christ so the love of God is the first stage of separating the world collectively you know you look at the whole world collectively I want to use that word um, exhaustively where it's everybody in the world without exception that's ever been born or ever will be born I want to use that word that way right now so all those people any human being Throughout the history of the world. The love of God is the first stage in separating those people collectively throughout history. So it should be considered the first move of God's sanctification. Actually, we can use that word sanctification. It's a separating. So the Father sanctifies by setting a people apart in Christ, by setting his affection on them in Christ, and then choosing them. And all the other, as it goes on, predestination and all the other. So if there are no people for God to save, then there is no gospel to tell. Right? If, if there's nobody that God's going to save, there's no gospel. 
There's no need to tell it to anybody because nobody's going to be saved if he didn't choose anybody to be saved. Now, it doesn't make sense that when we look at the sin issue, especially, that sin demands death. We know sin came into the world. Sin demands death. And we know because God's holy, he's righteous, he's just. And we next have to consider what will God do? What will he do? Man knows because he has a conscience. He naturally sees the, the guilt that's on him, the law written on his heart, as it says in Romans 2, that's his conscience. So he knows something's wrong. God says there's been sin activity that's taken place. He's you know shown wrath and he's mad about it. He's gonna he's gonna do something about it. So again, if there's nobody chosen, no need for a message saying that anything's good news at all. So it's good news that we see that he has in the scriptures revealed the fact that he will be saving some people. So we can see, okay, there's hope, right? There's hope for somebody. There's good news that there is a way of redemption as opposed to no way of redemption. See what I'm getting at? So the controversy concerning this, I mean, come to that conclusion, then the next step is you've got different opinions of how that way takes place, right? The controversy among humans has to do with, actually, it boils down to the attributes of God. When we talk about this God that does it this way versus God that does it this way, we look at the character attributes explained in his own word, and we see they, they oppose each other. One is true and one's a lie. Look at Exodus 33. Exodus 33. Keeping in mind, as we look at this text, we're, we're sticking with this question, is election part of the gospel? And if so, how? And I'm pretty sure we're going to be sprinkling this throughout the series, this, this question, be addressing it further. But in Exodus 33, 16, there's a discussion here between Moses and God. And in verse 16 it says, For in what shall it be known that I and your people have found grace in your sight? Is it not that you go with us? So shall we be separated. Notice that. I and your people from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. So we have this this language about God separating this group of people from all the other people on the face of the earth. There again, that idea of sanctification, setting apart. Verse 17, and Jehovah said to Moses, notice the this language that's used throughout the next few verses. These two words, I will. Jehovah said to Moses, I will do this thing also that I have spoken unto you. For you have found grace, notice that, when we're talking about election, again this comes up about grace, separating this people from all the other people on the earth is grace. You have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Wow, that's a, that's a particular individual type of separation. Separate names. We'll be looking later at 
doctrines in the scripture about how that the names are written in the book of life. Names are written in his, in his hand, and so on and so forth. So God is dealing with particular people. Verse 18, and he said, I beseech you or I beg you, Moses speaking, let me see your glory. And he said, God said, I will make all my goodness. And notice, think about that. That's an attribute of God, his goodness. You think his goodness is associated with his grace? You think his goodness is associated with him separating this people from all the people? That's being good to them, no doubt. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Jehovah before you. Now, think also about this, what we've learned in the past about God's name. God's name has some meanings behind it. God's name is associated with the gospel. God's name is associated with salvation. He says there's salvation in my name, right? So this thing that he's getting ready to do for these people that he separated in showing them his glory, which not everybody gets to see. God hides his glory from some people. This is goodness. And grace that God is getting ready to do for these people that he separated from all the other people. The next part, the middle of verse 19. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Directly in the context that flows right from he's saying, I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to show you my goodness. I'm going to show you my grace. I'm going to show you my name in connections with his name. He talks about this grace and this mercy, how that it's associated with who he is. It's associated with his name. Of course, we're familiar with some of that language there. It's in Romans 9, 15 through 18. He goes on to say, and he said, I, you cannot see my face, for there no man can see me and live. And Jehovah said, behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand upon a rock. Well, we know that because of God's splendor and his glory, we know the, the vision of Isaiah, how that Isaiah saw him high and lifted up and the the angels flew around him and they, they couldn't look on his face. They covered up their face and they were scared enough to cover up their, uh, you know, their feet with the wings because they were afraid to be consumed. And these are sinless angels. And here he tells uh, Moses, glory's going to pass by and you're not going to see my face. You need a mediator to be able to know what's going on about me. So here he starts talking about Christ. There's a place by me. And you shall stand upon a rock, speaking of speaking of Christ, where he's getting ready to talk about hiding in Christ. Verse 22, and it will be while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away my hand and you shall see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. This is taken care of, and this is explained out more in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where it talks about the God who created light out of darkness, a shine in our hearts, give us the glory of the knowledge 
of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. We see his face as we're hidden from God's light that we can't look at and live. So we see Christ's face. We don't see the whole picture. We see enough of the picture to see the brilliant glory of God and for it to be a saving view of God. And it gives us the the fear in, in reference to reverential fear and respect of who God is. And we know that we don't want to, or we can't even, as it says here, we can't look on God. So we want to look upon him in Christ and be hidden and be safe. And that's the way that God has set it up. So there's a lot of language there. It talks about grace, goodness, mercy, glory, and that this is a separated people. And I'll separate who I want, he's saying. That's who I am. I'll decide. I'm the chooser. I'm the separator. Look at 2 Timothy. And see, when we look at this, as we, as we looked at that text, we don't want to skip that part where he hides us in Christ. Some people would look at this and just glorify the sovereignty of God and say, God's sovereign. Who cares about the rest? Well, the rest is talking about Christ. <laughs> we, we don't want to divorce that. He separates us so that we may be in Christ, not just to brag about his sovereignty. Second Timothy 1.9. We've looked at this before for several different reasons, but I want us to remember what is our point? What is our question? Is election associated with the gospel? Verse 9 says, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling? Not, there it is again, not according to our works. Now, not according to our works talks about saved us and called us with a holy calling. We can still connect this with election because all of salvation is one whole. It is part of salvation and there has to be a people to be called so that they can be called. And we know it talks about election being not of works. Same phrase that's used here. And if the election is unto salvation, then it's about this holy calling. That's what it's talking. That's, that's the direction it's going. The middle part of that says, but according to his own purpose and grace. Now, we just don't stop there. But we see the connective flow of the context, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. It's talking about election. This purpose in grace that's not of works, that's part of the whole package of salvation, is talking about divine election. It was given to us or pretty much reserved or set aside, secured. Not that that's all, but it was set up that way so that we will eventually be saved to the uttermost that includes all of salvation even in the end the redemption of our bodies and glorification and so on it goes further and gets more specific in verse 10 this purpose that's been talked about that was given us in Christ before the foundation of the world this Paul writing this 2,000 years ago it says right now it's been made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ through the gospel Jesus Christ, who abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So this message of the gospel, it talks about the connection of the purpose before the foundation of the world in Christ 
that shows that it's not of works, that it will eventually get us to being called out and saved. So all this stuff must be kept together, not be divorced. We can't say that election, we can't say election is not part of salvation, and we can't say the election is the only part of salvation. We can't do either one. And, and those two verses pretty much bring the whole thing together. There's a lot of details in between that, that there's other scripture tell us about. I'll go to Ephesians, uh, back to Ephesians, but in chapter 3. Again, keeping in mind this topic, is election associated with the gospel? Is it any part of the gospel? And if it is, how? Ephesians 3, we'll start in verse 1. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for, for you Gentiles, if you have heard, start thinking of, these, these all these words are important. Hearing has to do with a, a message, some information, right? I want you to think about the gospel. Heard of this dispensation of grace, the grace of God. There's some of that word again. It's talking about grace of God. Remember the gospel is the grace of God. Which is given me to you word. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. As I wrote before in a few words. Whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So he's talking about something specific here, a mystery. Verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That, here, here it is, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, and of the same body and partakers of, notice, his promise in Christ by the gospel. His promise in Christ by the gospel. That's the mystery. Now, as you start talking about that, you have to talk about people. And we have to know that these people have to be pulled out from among other people and separated like we read in Exodus. Verse 7. Whereof... I made a minister according to the gift of, again, the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power unto me, who am less than the least of all the saints is grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and make all men see what the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world was hid in God, who created all things by Christ. It's getting it back again, farther back than we are, and it's putting things in God's hands so that, as I said before, we can get no traction to affect it. And it talks about the Gentiles specifically, which brings our minds to the new covenant that says, you know, the, the, these contrasts of covenants show a deeper separation, that it's not Jews only. It's people from within the Jews and from within the Gentiles that are separated out. And here's the mystery that dogs are going to be included. The old filthy Gentiles are going to be included. That's a mystery, isn't it? Well, those that hear this mystery that are God's people, the mystery is dispelled and they know the mystery. That's talked about throughout Scripture that 
you know, people only want to read half of that where it talks about a mystery, and then usually there's a but, and then it talks about, you guys know it. Well, that's what's going on here. It's talking about these people out of Jews and Gentiles, especially here, the Gentiles that have been chosen to be the people of God. Verse 10, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers and heavenly places might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God, verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. There again, it brings us back to election. Elect unto salvation so that Christ can get the glory for the election and the full salvation because of the price that he paid. Now, I just want to quote this: these few verses. You've heard these a bajillion times. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. It's a very generic definition of the gospel. And let me read it real quick. And brothers, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preach to you, which you receive, and in which you stand, by which you are also being kept safe, if you hold fast the word which I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. I delivered unto you, first of all, that, that which I've received, that Christ died for our sins. It's talking about this person who is the preeminent one, who's the focal point, dying for, and it uses a personal pronoun, our sins. Now, not even talking about who that's talking about right now. I want to, I want to mention that, going back to that original idea, that there has to be somebody that God has said, I am going to save somebody, so that there can be a gospel to preach to that somebody. Well, here's a very generic definition that Christ died for our sins. And we're going to talk about how that needs to be contextually looked at. Died for our sins according to the scripture, was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. There are many verses throughout scripture that, many, many, that talk about identifying people. And these verses contain words associated with salvation that are like you, us, them, world, all, any, all. You've, you've seen all these. And we've been trained on how to look at them and look at them in their context. So they have to be interpreted, in other words, by their context. So this goes to who is elected, in other words. That's what we're getting at. Who is elected. A twisting of this right here is when we start to see there's usually no argument unless somebody's really, really super ignorant in the Bible. They'll say God didn't choose anybody. You're the chooser. Those are Arminians that are, are really, really ignorant because some Arminians know they go that God foreseeing thing. They go that route. But this point right here, once everybody's settled on, yes, God is going to save somebody. And you can at least get somebody to admit, well, God chose who he's going to save. And that is the point right there where this thing starts to go. There's a fork in the road. A twisting in the wrong direction right here starts the formation of a false gospel. And when that happens, the first thing that happens is you start peeling off, stripping God of his attributes. You, what you're doing is you start describing an idol. If you take a God and you say, he has no right to do that, the way you've described election, the way the scripture describes election, he has no right to do that. What you've done is you stripped him of his sovereignty, and you know what? You don't have a God. You have an idol. And, you know, believe it or not, and this is nothing to my credit, but when I was lost, I saw that. 
When I was lost, I said Armenians were lost because they believed in a God that was not sovereign. How simple is that? That's simple. And you've got people today that claim they believe the gospel, and you not only give them that argument, you give them, you unwind all kind of arguments, and they, they refuse to see it. God's sovereignty is not the only attribute that's, that's in play here. There's many attributes that are connected to uh, what's going on here, not just sovereignty. I mean, you could go on to display a God who actually failed all along the way in, in this other view where the road starts to fork into different directions. You can look at the, the wrong fork and you can say, he, he failed all along the way. Every single step of the way, this God failed. And what you're doing is you're, you're stripping God of his attributes by all these false arguments. You're stripping him of his attributes. Sovereignty, justice, righteousness, holiness, faithfulness, changeability. Grace, on and on. It also, you know, of course we know this, it gives the sinner the credit and the right to boast for making the whole thing work in the first place. Where this God failed the sinner's long way, cleaning up God's mess, making it work. And in the end, he gets credit and glory for being the one that made the difference between saved and lost. So the doctrine of election, it can and it has been taught by many, if not most, in a way that it separates it from the gospel. And that, that's happening all over the place. Where it's just general teaching of election, a highlight of sovereignty, no Christ mention, no gospel connection. I'm telling you, that's not good. I mean, I spent time in that, and some of you also have spent time in that. And um, Christ must be the focus. Go back in, in conclusion to Ephesians 1. I want us to see in these four verses just a few things that we, that was the introductory text that are connected to the gospel. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. First of all, boom, in Christ. We looked at that in the message a few weeks back. Verse 4. According as he had chosen us in him, in Christ. So there it is. That is the start of seeing a gospel connection that it is in this one who performs the gospel for his people. And it's before the foundation of the world. And notice, what is, what is the fruit of this? What does eventually happen to these ones that he chose? That we should be holy and without blame before him. That is why God is choosing his people so that he can save them and make them holy and without blame before him. That is, that's the gospel connection right there. This has to do with the saving done by Christ and his activity to present us this way, to present us with his righteousness and his holiness. And we will be before him at judgment or even now without blame. If we leave that part out of election, we're going in the wrong direction. This is why that we were elected. And notice, go on, having predestinated us, really the next stage after election is predestination. Having predestinated us into the adoption, there's another one, of children by Jesus Christ to himself. So Christ is there again. And then look at this language here. It reminds us of the language What's next in Exodus 33 and Romans 9? According to the good pleasure of his will. 
Remember he said, I will do this. I'll separate. I'll show you my ple uh, my goodness. I'll show you my grace. I'll show you my glory. I will do this. And I'll do it to whoever I want. I'm not going to do it to everybody. And I'm going to show you my name. This is part of who I am. This is my character. I am God. There's none else. He says that several times. And he does this in verse 6. He does all this to what? The praise of his glory. Again, of his grace in which... He's made us accepted in the beloved. He's made us accepted in the beloved. There, he, Christ is still in that context. He keeps Christ in the whole explanation of spiritual blessings, election, adoption, predestination, his good pleasure. All these things, they're all kept together and they're associated with the gospel. Any questions or comments?